When Joseph was 17 years old, his brothers sold him into slavery. He wound up a slave in Egypt who was falsely accused and then thrown into prison. And Joseph's slavery and imprisonment lasted 13 years. For 13 years, he was patient. For 13 years, he endured. Finally, God intervened. And God's sovereign plan and purpose was revealed. When Joseph was 30 years old, he was called out of the prison and brought in front of Pharaoh and interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And he became the prime minister of Egypt. And he saved the lives of countless people. If you would, turn to James chapter 5 this morning. James chapter 5, we'll look at the end of verse 6 through verse 11. In our text this morning, James will command us to be patient when we suffer. And he will remind us of the blessing that comes from endurance. And we can be patient and we can endure because we know God has a plan and we know God has a purpose. And because one day God will intervene. He will for sure intervene when Christ comes back. Let's read verses 6 through 11 in James chapter 5. Verse 6, we read last week, it says, Ye, speaking of the rich people, ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy." If you remember the background of the, the first part of the chapter, James strongly rebuked these rich people who selfishly and dishonestly hoarded up wealth. And we talked about whether that was lost rich people or saved rich people. And then at the end of the day, it, I don't know that it really matters. Judgment is coming if you have that view of wealth. But during that time, there were some rich people that condemned and murdered the righteous and we talked about how that could have been literal or it could have been figurative, describing how they withheld wages from them, which was as, as vicious and as violent as murder. Either way, it doesn't change the harsh truth. And we see at the end of verse 6, which we didn't talk much about last week, says, He doth not resist you. This righteous person suffering, this just person that was suffering, did not oppose or stand up against the rich one condemning him and oppressing him. And perhaps it was because he really couldn't. Perhaps the power and the wealth and the influence of the rich man was too overwhelming anyway, and what's the just man going to do anyway? And that's, that's possibly part of it. Or perhaps this righteous person was doing his best to follow the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught his followers to turn the other cheek, not to retaliate, even to go above and beyond to be a blessing to other people 
Jesus even had the audacity to tell his people to love their enemies and pray for those who are persecuting them. Pray for the people who are bringing unjust suffering upon you. We already know from chapter 1 that James's readers had suffered and were probably still suffering. And he commanded them to view those trials with joy. Not because trials are fun or that trials are joyful, but because a trial, when your faith is tested, can produce endurance and mature you and grow you into the person God wants you to be. And now he brings up this idea of suffering again. And we may ask the question, is there anything else I can do? Is there anything else I should be doing during this time? I, I hope that I count it as joy, but, you know, what else? And James says in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brethren. And there's that word again, that therefore word. So we've got to back up and remember what he just said. In light of the fact that God's judgment is coming upon the oppressive and cruel rich people who are maybe causing much of your suffering, be patient. Even if they're oppressing you, be patient. Even if you're the one suffering, be patient. The command is not to fight back. The command is not to get even. The command is not to exact vengeance. It's to be patient. This is actually the first time James has used this word patience in the letter. He used a different word in chapter 1 to describe the endurance or the perseverance or the steadfastness that a trial can produce. And we'll talk more about the connection between the patience and the endurance in these two words in a little while. But right now I want you to listen to a few ways this word patience was used and how it was described. Word patience has the idea of being long-tempered. We know what a short temper is, probably all too well. This is being long-tempered. In fact, it's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament to describe the long-suffering nature of God. God does not immediately punish people when they sin. He doesn't immediately zap you with a lightning bolt every time you sin. We wouldn't be here. Nobody would. The earth would be empty. God doesn't react or act like that. God is patient. He doesn't have these knee-jerk reactions. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He delays His wrath, giving us more opportunity to repent and get right with Him. Another way this word is described is someone who has this state of emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. Another, word, another author says it's the quality of a person who is able to avenge himself, yet refrains from doing so. Boy, those characteristics are not something that's very common or natural to man, is it? Men tend not to face unjust suffering with patience. We look for either a way out or a way to get even. So if this isn't something natural to us, now, what do we do? How can I even follow this command if what you just said this word means, Brother Matt, is nothing like I want to act when I'm unjustly suffering? Well, it just so happens this is one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul told the Galatians the Spirit will produce in your life. This patient and long-suffering attitude, even in the face of trials, even when you're suffering, is something that God's Spirit 
can and will develop in your life if you yield to Him and submit to Him. It's not something you say, I'm going to grit my teeth and do this on my own. It goes back to humbling yourself before God and submitting to Him and asking for His help and letting His Spirit work in your life. And one reason that James gives us as to why we can have this patience is to remember that Christ is coming back. If Christ is coming back, then can we not be patient in this life? All trials and all suffering, no matter how severe, no matter how painful, no matter how undeserved, are only temporary. What did we just sing? Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. But we have this tendency and this, this difficulty uh, to not look past the here and now. We are a society of what have you done for me lately. We get absorbed and focused on the moment. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, we do that and we forget our glorious future hope. Remembering the certainty of Christ's return, which Brother Connor preached about recently, will help you have patience in this life. James tells us, be patient until the coming of the Lord. This word coming is, is really awesome. The way it was used in the first century was to describe a royal visit to a certain city or a district. It wasn't used if the emperor sent a messenger to the city. It wasn't used if he sent his ambassador to the city. This was used when royalty came in the flesh. One day... The royal king of kings will visit this district in the flesh. He's coming. He's not going to send a messenger. He's not going to send an ambassador. He's coming. And when Christ returns, we will never again face affliction, oppression, persecution, suffering, trials, you name it. But we'll share in His glorious inheritance. So be patient. Wait in hope for the King's return. And then James does something that he's so good at, and we, we're used to this by now. He gives us some sort of illustration to help us understand. He gives us an illustration of a husbandman or a farmer to help us understand what it's like to be patient with this hopeful expectation. A farmer's work isn't easy. Some of y'all are gardeners. You may not call yourself farmers, but you garden. A farmer must prepare his field. He's got to plant the crop. He's got to tend to it. He's got to care for it. And he doesn't see immediate results. I'd be a great gardener if you could plant on Monday and wake up Tuesday and harvest. It doesn't work that way, except maybe weeds. A farmer does all this work. And then he's got to wait patiently. In fact, the fruit doesn't come, specifically in Palestine, until after the rains, which he can't control anyway. Yet he patiently waits. This word that James uses for wait here, it's more than just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, but it has the idea of waiting with expectancy. 
It's waiting on the edge of your seat. The farmer may not be able to affect the outcome very much, but he expects a harvest because he expects God to be faithful in sending the rain. In fact, the idea of God's faithfulness was inherent here, especially to these Jewish Christians, because of this expression that we see of early and latter rain, the end of verse 7. In Palestine, there are these two sets of, of rains that are both needed during the year so that they can have a successful harvest. And the reason it points to God's faithfulness is because that every time in the Old Testament, when you see the expression early or latter rains, or early and latter rains, it always occurs in a context that affirms or announces the faithfulness of God to provide what is needed. Think about James's first audience being these Jewish Christians who were well-versed in the Old Testament. I think they would have got this reference. And so the farmer patiently waits, expecting God to be faithful. And so what James is saying is that even when you're suffering, and even when you don't see immediate results, don't ever doubt the faithfulness of God. Be like the farmer and keep doing the right thing with the expectation that God will be faithful. He will produce fruit in your life, just like James has already said would happen in chapter 1. If you view a trial joyfully, God will produce fruit, even if it's not produced quicker, quick like you think it would be here. You would hope for it to be. Don't doubt the faithfulness of God. Fruit can be produced, and we can grow and mature. And so don't, don't doubt God's faithfulness in, in that regards. And don't doubt God's faithfulness in the sense that He'll intervene. Because He sure will intervene when Christ comes back, if not sooner. But for sure then. So be patient. And if you look at verse 8, James reiterates the command, doesn't he? And he adds another one. Verse 8 says, Be ye also patient. Same command. But then he says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. The word establish here means to establish or to strengthen. I think this is important here because we need to realize that patience and long-suffering doesn't mean weakness. In fact, sometimes it takes a whole lot more strength to be patient than it does to be quick-tempered and angry and try to fight back. It takes a lot of strength to be long-suffering. But sometimes that's hard to be strong and to be firm when we're suffering. Where does that strength come from? Where does that being firmly planted come from? Well, we gather our strength because the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Basically, James is repeating himself. I say this all the time. It's kind of ironic that I'm repeating myself about the Bible repeating itself. The Bible only has to say something once for it to be important. So if the Bible repeats itself, we better pay attention. And James is repeating himself. Be patient because the Lord's coming back. And so the sure return of Jesus Christ should motivate us to be patient and also give us strength when we suffer. And so we've got these two commands to be patient, to be strong. And then all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, verse 9 says, Grudge not once again, one against another. Where did that command come from all of a sudden? 
Grudge not one against another, brethren. First of all, the sense of this command is a little different than the ones he just gave. And kind of the overall sense of this command is really similar to the one in chapter 4 where he said, don't speak evil against one another. It, what I mean is this command has the ring of a general precept to live by. It's a continuous prohibition. Never grudge against one another. It should just be something that never categorizes or characterizes your life. Why would you ever do that? You say, well, what does it mean? What does grudge mean? It doesn't mean to hold a grudge. Not that that's good. But it means grumbling or groaning or, as one author says, to complain strongly about. It's the attitude of fault-finding and criticism, and it definitely sends us back to what he said in chapter 4 about don't speak evil against one another. It's not unrelated to that. I made the point then in chapter 4 that evil speaking doesn't have to be untruthful. It doesn't have to mean you're lying about someone. Evil speaking can be truthful. It's just why are you saying it? What's your motive for it? Are you being harsh and critical and malicious and mean? Are you just griping and complaining? And so this command falls in line with what we've seen James uh, already teach with how he's taught about evil speech and what he said about our tongues and things like that throughout the letter. But again, why does he drop it right here? Why bring it up in the middle of this discussion about being patient during suffering? Have you ever lashed out at someone when you were having a bad day even though it wasn't their fault? Not you. Sometimes when we're pressured and we're stressed and we're suffering and we're facing trials, we have a tendency to unload on the closest people to us. And sometimes it's not just an unloading of, of you know, venting, but it's even turning our frustrations towards them. When it's not their fault. They had nothing to do with it. They're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, so to speak. That's not a godly way to handle stress. For these Jewish Christians who had endured and probably were still enduring suffering, James is urging them, don't turn on one another, which we know they kind of already were from, from the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now he's kind of telling them the same thing again. Don't complain and gripe about each other. Don't grab against each other. When we're suffering, we need each other. When we're suffering, we need to be for each other, not turning against each other. And one reason for that, there's probably many reasons, but one reason is given at the end of the verse, and it just so happens to be the same reason he gave us for being patient. Christ coming back. But he says it in verse 9 as the judge stands before the door. See, the return of the Lord is a two-sided coin. On the one side, it is our glorious hope, our encouragement, our reminder that this life isn't all there is. This life's temporary, and there's much better things in store, so be patient. But on the other side, it should also be a motivating factor in how we live and how we treat people because Christ is the judge. And so Christ's coming is both an encouragement to be patient and a warning on how to live. You really want to be griping about each other when the Lord comes back? Have you ever been talking about somebody or about somebody else and somebody walks in and 
get real quiet all of a sudden and you just hope they didn't hear what you were saying? Boy, I hope we're not griping about each other when Jesus comes back. Oh, did he hear that? Well, he did. But maybe some of these Jewish Christians were thinking, yeah, but James, you don't know how bad we've got it. It's easy for you to write us a letter and send it to us and tell us how to be patient and not griping about each other. And so James, again, does what he does best sometimes, which is give some more examples. He gives, some, he gives two more examples of remaining patient and enduring hardships to show us that it can be done. His first example is the prophets. Look at verse 10. He says, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. If you've ever read much of the Old Testament, then you know that God's prophets were not always given the red carpet treatment. I would have hated to be an Old Testament prophet in the sense of the suffering and the pain that they endured. Their lives were not filled with ease and, and, and physical prosperity. Hebrews 11 says this about the prophets, that they suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of goats and sheeps, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Who wants to sign up for that at the job fair? That was the life of a prophet. Think about Jeremiah alone and what he went through. Not only was Jeremiah's message ignored and he was called a liar. Okay, you didn't believe me. I, okay. But he was beaten. He was put in stocks. He was sentenced to death. He was thrown down into a muddy cistern. All for speaking the truth that God put in his mouth. And so James brings up the prophets here, and we're reminded that sometimes doing the will of God will lead to suffering. Sometimes you may suffer unjustly, just like the prophets, but that's no reason to quit. That's no reason to doubt God's faithfulness. That's no reason to get even with our oppressors, and it's no reason to lash out at each other. Jeremiah and the prophets didn't quit patiently endured the affliction, waiting patiently and trusting in the faithfulness of God. You may have it bad. James isn't saying that it's not bad. You may be suffering. But there are so many examples in the Bible you can look to for encouragement. What does Hebrews 12 say right after Hebrews 11? We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who showed faith, even though their lives were not always easy. In fact, then James in verse 11 reminds us of something he said in chapter 1 about endurance. He said, Behold, we count them happy which endure. If you look back at verse 1, not verse 1, chapter 1 and verse 12, early in the letter James said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. This blessedness in both cases here is not this fleeting happiness. It's a spiritual prosperity and a spiritual blessing. And James says, we, we count them as blessed who have endured. Don't we admire people who endure trials in a godly way? Have you ever watched someone go through a difficult time in their life, but they did it with grace 
and wisdom and dignity, and they didn't quit. And didn't you consider that person blessed? And maybe didn't you even see God's blessing in their lives? And maybe didn't they even turn into a blessing for you? As they encouraged you to endure too? Now this word endured at the first part of this verse is the same word James used in chapter 1 to describe that endurance or steadfastness or perseverance that is produced when our faith is tested. And it is a little different than the patience he's just commanded us to have. Think about this. Patience is that long-suffering nature, that emotional quietness instead of avenging yourself. Endurance or perseverance or steadfastness literally means to bear up under the load, to remain up under the pressure. Some people make the point that patience is what you show towards people and endurance is what you show towards circumstances. That, I think there may be something to that, even though I don't know if I want to make a black and white rule and distinction about that. But maybe that helps us understand a little bit of the difference between these two similar words. And so the next example that James brings up then is the poster child for endurance and for the righteous suffering, right? He says in verse 11, Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, in this verse, the King James says, you have heard of the patience of Job. But if you have another translation, it says either steadfastness or endurance or perseverance of Job. And those are better translations here because this word James used is not the same word he used for patience just verses earlier. It's not the patience of Job. It's the endurance of Job or the perseverance or steadfastness of Job. And I think that's very important especially if we remember the story of Job. Job suffered much. In the matter of moments, he went from being a wealthy father to a bankrupt man burying his children. Then to make matters worse, he lost his own health, and he had these great friends that came to comfort him, though. And all they did was pile on all they did was blame him for sin and saying, this, this sinfulness in your life is the only way we can explain what's going on, even though we know he wasn't being punished for sin. And if you remember, though, much of the book, and specifically Job's own actions, patience is probably not the characteristic you would ascribe to Job. Go back and read Job. He was not patient, uh, patient in the sense of demonstrating emotional quietness and a long temperament. He lashed out at his friends. Who lashed out at him? He lashed out at God. He questioned God. He said things to God and about God that make us squirm. So he, ne he wasn't necessarily patient in that way, but he never quit. He endured he remained up under that heaviest load. He persevered. He was steadfast. He didn't quit. And maybe that's why James brings up both of these examples of the prophets and Job. The prophets are a great example of patience. And Job is the best example of endurance. And maybe there's some overlap between patience and endurance. But we need both. Both. 
We need patience as we wait for the Lord's return. And we need endurance to bear up under the trials of life. And the great thing about it all is that during all of that, we already know the ending. You ever picked up a book and read the last page first? Just to kind of see how it's going to end? Look, I already know the ending of the story if you're a believer. James says at the end of verse 11, You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. For the word end here, think purpose or goal. You know the Lord's purpose. You know His goal. No matter what happens in this life, even sufferings, God can work things out for a greater purpose, for a greater goal because of His unmatched compassion and mercy. God can take the pain and work it for good. Did He not do that in Job's life? Job suffered. He suffered more than I can possibly imagine. But in the end, several of God's purposes were manifested. But one, one of those purposes was that Job's faith and trust in God grew. Job was strengthened in the end in chapter 42 because he understood God better, not because he understood suffering better. That's just one of God's purposes in Job's story. God knew that Job going through these trials would draw them closer together in the end and increase Job's faith. And just like Job, if you will endure through trials and remain loyal to God, you will realize His compassion. You will realize His mercy. You'll realize it in this life. Because His grace is sufficient. And you'll ultimately realize it when Christ returns. You'll have no doubts. The prophets, Job, Joseph, these first century Jewish Christians, and even you and I, we've all suffered. Some of the suffering may have just been because we were God's people, like the prophets. Maybe you're just doing what you're supposed to do, and because of that, you've been persecuted or you've suffered. Some of the suffering may have been from someone you know, maybe your own family, like Joseph. Maybe it's one of those James chapter 1 things, he just fell into a trial of life. Just, it just happened. Maybe it was a lot like Job. Job never even knew why he suffered. But it really doesn't matter. The lesson is the same. When trials or suffering come up in your life, be patient. Because the pain is only temporary because the Lord is coming. And endure because God has a purpose and a plan. Don't doubt His faithfulness to produce fruit in your life. That's how James began the whole letter in talking about how trials can grow us spiritually. So while this world would seek to get even, to exact vengeance, and get angry when it's suffering, it shouldn't be the attitude of a Christian. Wasn't the attitude of Joseph, was it? Do you remember when Jacob died? What Joseph's brother said to him? They were scared. They thought, now that dad's dead, Joseph is going to come after us. He was acting nice because dad was still here, but now it's time. And when Joseph knew they were thinking this and they sent messengers to him to say, hey, dad said to treat us right, 
It really hurt Joseph's feelings. Joseph gathered them together and he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Job saw the bigger picture. That wasn't his attitude. And thank goodness that wasn't the attitude that Christ had. His sufferings were truly unjust. He was the only innocent man who ever lived. And yet, what was his attitude during his trials? Did he seek vengeance? Did he pour out his wrath on those religious leaders who were yelling, crucify him? Did he get even with those Roman soldiers? Did he take out his frustrations on the mockers? No, he was patient. He was long-suffering. And he endured. He had the ability to avenge himself, but he refrained. And thank goodness he did, because God had a plan, didn't he? God had a purpose for those sufferings. Because of the patience and the endurance of Jesus Christ, we have a great Savior. A great Savior who will bless you with forgiveness and eternal life if you will repent and trust Him. If you do that, I can't promise you an amazing, carefree life. It might get worse. But I can promise you that God has a plan and a purpose even during sufferings. He is such a good God. One day He will intervene if not before, he will sure intervene when Christ returns. Let's stand. Be patient and endure. And don't doubt the faithfulness of God. Let's say a prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for James. Help us to take these lessons and apply it to our lives. Give us patience. Give us strength. Give us endurance, Lord. And help us to look to your word for examples of encouragement. We wait for your, for your son's glorious return, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.